So, we are back in Luke chapter 4, and uh, I was out last week, Caleb filled in for me, and then he was out the week before, and I filled in for him, but we're back on schedule now, okay? And uh, last time I was here, uh, Jesus was preaching in a synagogue in his own hometown in Nazareth, and they tried to kill him. Uh, Today... He goes to another synagogue and meets a demon-possessed man. So, let's take a look at this. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. Just a little geographical note. Nazareth is actually south of Capernaum, but when the Bible talks about going down, it means down the mountain because Nazareth is up on a, on a hill and the Sea of Galilee is below sea level. So down means like literally down, right? So he went down to Capernaum, a a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching for his words possessed authority. We'll come back to that. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And I I don't always put the words of Jesus in red, but I just want you to see, um, Jesus doesn't say a lot. But this shows you his authority. He just says um, one thing and deals with it. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Lord, as we uh, open this text, I know there are uh, people who find... The demonic realm, hard to believe. And then, Lord, there are others who are very familiar with it. Uh, So, Lord, I pray that you would use your word to give us uh, comfort and confidence and wisdom uh, to to realize what kind of a world we live in and to realize what kind of a Savior we serve. We pray it in your powerful name. Amen. So... um, When it comes to outlining a passage, outlining a a sermon, uh, of course the experts always find three points that all begin with the same letter, right? Don't try that at home. Uh, But sometimes the way to outline a passage is is a lot simpler, and here's the the outline I'm going to follow. There's three characters involved here. There's the man, the demon, and Jesus. So there's my outline, the man, the demon, and Jesus. So let's take a look at this man. Now, um, Jesus is basically going synagogue to synagogue. The little towns all had synagogues. And he is going on a tour, a preaching tour around the Sea of Galilee. And he goes to church. So let's just kind of equate it to church. Now, there was the big temple in Jerusalem. But when uh, that was destroyed under Babylon, they came back and rebuilt it. But uh, they also, that's when the, the synagogue idea came, where they had little local 
houses of worship. So here's a, a little house of worship in a Capernaum. And by the way, I sent the picture out. If you go on the Israel tour, you can actually go to this synagogue. It's actually a 5th century ruins, but it's built right on top of the synagogue that Jesus would have preached in. It's right on the top of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. Peter lived about a stone's throw away from, uh, from this synagogue. His house is there too, they think. Right? Um, so, Jesus goes to church, and as he's preaching, a demon-possessed man manifests himself. Um, and just a, a little side note, why, why did Jesus encounter so many demon-possessed people? I think his very presence amongst the demonic realm created panic in them. So this demon comes out, don't torture me, don't torture me. So just his very presence manifested this demon. Now you say, what's a demon-possessed guy doing in church? This seems really, really odd. Maybe he was, you know, maybe he wandered off the streets, but this is really an odd thing, isn't it? I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure it's that odd. What better place, if you were Satan, to embed demon-possessed or demon-influenced people than in the midst of God's people? to cause chaos and turmoil and fear. In fact, I wonder if this is just a rather normal thing. It's just that this demon-possessed man, the demon manifests himself in the presence of God. Okay? You know, when you look at the New Testament, we see satanic influence embedded in religion. Remember, a couple weeks ago, Jesus is preaching in Nazareth, and they don't like his sermon, so what do they do? They try to kill him. Do you see Satan's hand there? Um, The Pharisees. Jesus said in Matthew 23, he said, you travel over land and sea to make converts, and when you have one, when you make a convert to your Phariseeism, you make him twice the son of hell that you are. You see Satan's hand there. Ultimately, who was behind the crucifixion of the Son of God? Now, theologically, you can say God. Um, And you say, well, it was the Romans who drove the nails, but really, wasn't it the priesthood? Caiaphas, who was behind Jesus' death. So, I don't know that this is as strange as it might be. Seem. You go, you mean there might be a demon-possessed person sitting next to me? Um, well, let me, let me broaden the concept here. There, there could be, right? But let me broaden the con- context to talk about not just demon possession, but demon influence. In fact, um, I did take a class on spiritual warfare in seminary, and the professor Uh, talked about the concept, and and most Christians would agree that possession would be when a demon actually takes up possession in your soul. And if you're a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit, um, I I, I would be of the opinion that a Christian cannot be demon-possessed. But having said that, 
there's possession, but what about oppression? What about influence? What about temptation? I mean, we face daily Satan's temptations. Jesus faced the temptation of Satan in the desert. Um, others are, are influenced. Others are oppressed. So I'm going to kind of expand this from just demon possession to being aware of demon influence or demon oppression. So for, first thing I want us to do is, is realize that it's not possession or nothing. There's different levels of demonic influence. Second thing I want us to understand is the connection between the demonic, false teachers, false teaching, and the influence it can have upon sheep. Okay, So here in uh, 1 Timothy 4, Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, uh, what, what he's saying is that the sheep get influenced by this false teaching which finds its origin in the demonic realm. You know, Satan's really good with the Bible. And he can twist it. And then there seems to be uh, false teachers whose consciences are seared. In other words, um, they're sociopaths. Who, a sociopath feels no tinge of guilt. He's just in it to get influence or money or whatever. So there's, there's Satan, the sociopathic teacher. Then there's the teaching that gets uh, passed down. And I'm not saying every person who's influenced by a false teaching is demon-possessed. But there's this chain of connection that goes all the way back to Satan. So all that uh, to say... Uh, Satan can be very influential amongst God's people. Right? Now, um, our small group, we have been looking at little books of the Bible, like uh, Philemon, and then our, the last book we looked at was Jude. Jude, I call Jude a field manual to sniff out Satan's influence. Jude is a, a little one-chapter book, right, uh, right before... Uh, the book of Revelation. And Jude is one of the brothers of Jesus. Right? And he warns the people of his day that people have infiltrated the church and they teach false things and the judgment of God is coming upon them. So I want to take a quick look at Jude to help us sniff out the smell of sulfur. Okay? Um, now, a couple warnings. One, don't go from one extreme to the other. From, I don't even know demons were real, to so-and-so's possessed. My dog's possessed. My kids are Let's not go there. Okay. Um, and then secondly, I've met some of your dogs, by the way. Um, let's not bypass ourselves here. Remember, um, one minute, Peter says, you know, Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the son of the living God. You're the Christ. And Jesus says, 
This isn't, it hasn't been revealed to you by flesh, but God revealed that. You spoke divine revelation. Next thing Jesus says, I got to go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter goes, no, 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 no talk of dying. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. So even sold out the apostle Peter can one minute be divine, speaking divine revelation, the next minute he can be used of Satan. So let's not be quick to apply this to everybody else. Let's evaluate ourselves. Okay? So in Jude, here, here's what, what, in, what Jude does. He uses a whole bunch of Old Testament references of, uh, of false teachers and false believers who God judged. Um, he talks about Cain. He talks about the Israelites who fell in the desert. He talks about angels, fallen angels. He talks about Korah's rebellion. So there's all these examples. But then he starts to apply it to the church in his day. So we're going to just look at that. In verse 4, Jude says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed. They're amongst you, is what he's saying. Uh, the crept in unnoticed is one word, perish dono. It means to lodge stealthily. All right, so there are, there are people amongst you, he says, that are secret agents. Now, there are uh, false believers and false teachers who can have a diabolical agenda, want to sneak into a church and take it over and, and uh, spread false teaching? In other words, they're the, the ones with the motive of sneaking in. But I think you could expand this also to, to be just Satan is the agent, or Satan is the mastermind, and he allows people who have false teaching to come in. They don't really have a personal agenda, but the, the idea is that Satan is the spy master putting them in various locations. Okay, So realize, Jude says, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. This isn't taking God by surprise. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our own only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, he is addressing a particular heresy called license. Paul seemed to deal most of the time with legalism. Here, Jude and his brother James, their letters seem to deal primarily with license. Legalism is heaping up a bunch of man-made rules uh, upon people to earn their way to God, to earn God's favor. License, on the other hand, says, oh, we understand grace, 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 and it gives you a license to live uh, in sensuality, an immoral lifestyle. Now, um, if, if, if I were to ask this question, it would be interesting what your answer would be. What do you think the problem in the church today is? Is it legalism or license? <laughs> I think they go hand in hand. External legalism, external rules, can be a cover for internal corruption. 
So that's why Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. You've got all the rules down. Got all those Sabbath rules and the dress is the right, and you wash your hands and you got all the rules down. You look beautiful on the outside, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You're a rotting corpse on the inside. So legalism many times is a cover for license. Right? Now, how do you tell? And, and I'm going to use a term here. Three tells. So if you play cards and uh, you want to know what your opponent, if they've got a good hand, sometimes, you know, they, they have a tell, a wink, a scratch. Okay. How do you tell Satan's influence amongst the people of God? I'm going to give you three things. Okay. First, what Jude points out is there's an anti-authoritarian arrogance. All of these are, are stem from arrogance, okay? Anti-authoritarian arrogance. So he says, yet in like manner, he's been talking about all these Old Testament occurrences of God judging people, in like manner, these people who are in the church today, in his day, also relying on their dreams. The basis of their authority, while many times claiming to be the Bible, like in quote chapter and verse, is ultimately themselves. Their own subjective dreams and feelings. Right? The Bible can be a useful support, but their ultimate authority is themselves. Remember, Satan's really good at quoting the Bible. Okay? So, um, relying on their dreams, they defile the flesh. Now, that's a, that's a, a term for sexual immorality. All right? Have you ever wondered why so many false teachers in the church, when they get exposed, you find out they've, they've led a life of some kind of sexual immorality? Well, the unsaved person doesn't have the Holy Spirit. They have no more ability to restrain the flesh than the rest of the unsaved world. Right? So they, they rely on their own dreams. They're sexually immoral. And here, they reject authority. Okay? The essence of Satan is rebellion against God. Those highly influenced by Satan, will have an anti-authoritarian spirit, right? Yet, we find out that these people in Jude's church that he's writing to are flatterers. Or they, it says they show favoritism to gain an advantage. In other words, they're great manipulators. Inside, they have no respect for authority. But they know how to play the game to get along, to get their way. Right? But there's an anti-authoritarian. You get to know them, they really don't have respect for authority. But they're able to play the game. All right? Now, again, before you go thinking of someone else, think about yourself. Do you have respect for 
authority. Now, you know, we live in a day and age where there's a lot of authority uh, that's being exposed as abusive. And there's movements calling people out, and that's a good thing. Uh, so, so don't just submit blindly to authority, but there's such a thing as just an arrogance that has no respect for any authority. Right? So the, the first thing to look for is an anti-authoritarian arrogance. Right? Second thing I want you to see uh, he, he says here, they blaspheme the glorious ones. Um, and then he goes on to say in verse 10, so he bla- they blaspheme the glorious ones. So th- there must have been some kind of arrogance toward the angelic realm or maybe even Satan himself. You ever meet people like that who are a little bit too cocky toward Satan and the demonic realm? I think that might have been going on here. But not only do they blaspheme the angelic realm, but these people blaspheme all they do not understand. They're ignorant, he's saying, but they're arrogant and they, uh, they have a knee-jerk reaction. I've never heard that before, and that's wrong. And, that's, and rather than, than humbly submitting to others who may have studied, um, they know it all. There's an ignorance, but an arrogance. You know, the things of God, the Bible, biblical ethics, are sometimes very complicated. And to have a knee-jerk reaction, well, it doesn't make sense to me, you must be a bleepity bleep bleep bleep, there's an ignorant arrogance. Okay? Again, we can all fall into this. I've never heard that before, therefore I must be right. Okay? But they hide the arrogance in their fellowship with people. He, he goes on to say this. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Love feasts referring to communion. They come to your potlucks, they come to communion, but like a, a, a ship that hits a reef and the ship is shipwrecked, that's what they're doing. They're hiding, but they'll fellowship with you, they'll eat your food. Their cover is friendliness. Okay. Um, third thing, there's a divisive arrogance. Look at this. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. There's the, the manipulation. But grumbling, malcontent, they're loud mouth boasters. Um, verse 19 it's those who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Now, there's a degree to which we want to just say, oh, well, that's just so-and-so. They're grumpy and opinionated. Careful. Why did God drop the entire generation of Israelites in the desert? 
grumbling, malcontent grumblers. God dropped in an, an entire generation for this divisive grumbling that went on in the desert. Okay, So put it all together. Doesn't mean that a person is demon-possessed, but a sign of satanic influence is an anti-authoritarian, ignorant, divisive arrogance. AID, A-I-D, anti-authoritarian, ignorant divisiveness. And it all stems from an arrogance. You go, well, what, what do I do? Titus says this, Paul says in Titus, as for a person who stirs up division after warning them once and then twice, have nothing to do with them. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. What are you doing listening to him? Do you want that kind of influence in your life and in your family? Don't put up with it. You know, it takes two to be divisive, one to speak and another to listen. Don't put up with it. So, um, all this to say, here's a man, demon-possessed. We expanded it to demon-influenced. How do you sense it? Read the book of Jude. And uh, I, I see in the book of Jude Satan's fingerprint all over those who are uh, divisive, ignorant, and anti-authoritarian. All right. let's, uh, let's move on now and talk about the demon himself. Um, now, I have to admit that when I have read in the past this story and the story of Jesus uh, in the cemetery, in the graveyard where the guy, the demon-possessed man comes up, I have read the demon as somewhat playful, messing with Jesus. In fact, this begins with ha. Well, that word ha doesn't mean ha ha ha, this is funny. It, it means let alone. It means leave me alone. Right? Um, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? What, what, you're, you have nothing to do with us, and we want nothing to do with you. Leave us alone. Have you come to destroy us? And I find it interesting that the demonic realm knows they're going to hell. And they fear going to hell. But they have no desire to repent. Reminds me of some people. Right? Then, when he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus silences him. Why, why does he silence him? He's speaking truth. Yeah, he's speaking truth, but I don't think Jesus needs demonic evangelists. Right? So he, he shuts him up. Look how similar the encounter is with the man in the graveyard. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Here is terror. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus? Okay, What have you to do with us? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, the Holy One of God. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Have you come to destroy us? They know who Jesus is. 
They know he's the king of kings. He is in authority, right? They know the truth, but they have no desire to submit to it. Reminds me of James 2.19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and repent. No, and shudder. Now, James uses this to talk about people we know who know the truth in their head. They believe Jesus is God. They believe Jesus is the creator. They believe Jesus died on the cross. They believe Jesus rose from the dead. But their faith is no more real than a demon's faith. What's the difference between saving faith and demonic faith? Love. The facts are the same, but the person who's truly saved loves Jesus. The person who's not saved, the demonic faith, there's just no love. You know, I think a great example of this, in our Tuesday men's group, we've been reading through the book of Acts, and Paul is on trial, and he stands before Governor Felix. So Pilate is replaced by Felix. And it's, uh, so he's, he's in uh, Caesarea, and Felix comes. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, in passing, we read about Drusilla. Let me tell you about Drusilla. She was married to another man, um, and Felix saw her. She was supposedly the most beautiful woman. And she was 16. She was married to another man. And Felix said, I must have her. And with the help of a sorcerer, somehow he arranged for her to divorce and marry him. So why is Paul referring to Drusilla? I think he's saying... Felix, not the most moral man on the planet. Okay? So, um, Paul is speaking in verse 25, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Now, why was he alarmed? Because Felix had anything but self-control righteousness, and the coming judgment. Paul's preaching law here. I'll call for you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. So he kind of likes what he's hearing. But he, he, who knows, maybe he even believed in his head about Jesus. His predecessor killed Jesus. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, favor, Felix left Paul in prison. All that to say the demons know the truth about Jesus and they have no love for him. And there are people who teach Sunday school who know all about Jesus, but ultimately they have no love for Do you love Jesus? Not do you know your Bible. 
Not are you orthodox in your statement of faith. Do you love Jesus? Now, speaking of Jesus, we will end by looking at Jesus. Be silent out of him. Now, what are we to do with this passage? So many people want to turn it into uh, an exorcism manual. Well, let's copy the words of Jesus and we'll go around and cast out demons. You know, I, I think some things that we see Jesus do, we are to imitate, right? Other things, I think we're to step back and say, what's the purpose of this passage? I think the purpose is for us to see those words in red, surrounded by those words in black, and go, wow, he has authority over the demonic realm. In fact, there are are few passages that so clearly tell us what we're to get out of it. This is one of them. In verse 32, they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. This incident happens. What's the conclusion? And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. In fact, the whole next section of the gospel is Luke exalting and upholding Christ's authority. Here, he has authority over the demonic. In the next little section, um, Jesus goes from the synagogue to Peter's house, which is right there, and his mother-in-law is sick with a fever, and Jesus heals her. And she gets up and serves a meal. I think he wanted a meal. So, you know. um, so she starts serving right away. That shows he has power over the demonic and power over disease. Then, the next thing we read in chapter 5, he uh, is out teaching out on the Sea of Galilee, and there's Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John, and he says, follow me. They drop their nets. They drop their business and they become literal followers of Jesus. He has power over the disciples. Do you see what's going on here? Power over the demons, power over disease, power over the disciples. Then there's this incident where a messenger is sent to Jesus, and uh, he's sent from a centurion whose servant is sick. And Jesus says, all right, I'll go. And on the way, another messenger comes, and, and the centurion basically says, hey, you don't even have to come. I believe in you so much, you can heal him long distance. And Jesus says, be healed. And he has authority over distance. Then he goes to a town where there's a, a funeral. The widow of Nain's son has died. And Jesus raises him from the dead. He has power over death. Then, of course, they get in a storm, a boat, and there's a storm. And the apostles think they're going to die. And Jesus says, be calm. He has authority over disaster. Power over the demons. Power over disease. Power over the disciples. Power over distance. Power over death. Power over disaster. 
Do you love him? Is he your savior? Is he your Lord? Trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those who fear the demonic, who fear disease, who fear um, a world that can seem very out of control. And Lord, we are reminded that you are sovereign. You have authority over it all. And Lord, we even trust that at times you allow these difficult things and We believe you can prevent them. We also believe that you can use them for our own development, our own good. Uh, So, Lord, ultimately, we place our trust in you. Lord, I pray especially for those who have to deal with those who are deeply influenced by Satan. Ask that you would take away fear, fill them with a confidence knowing that you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the sovereign authority. I pray, pray Lord, for protection, especially in the area of the mind uh, where fear and doubt and false teaching can creep in. Uh, Lord, keep us close to you. We pray it in your name. Amen.